0: I'm Natasha Bellingham. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Where's William Tyrrell, where we will cover some sensational developments on Friday, the 16th of August at the coronial inquest into William's disappearance. I'm joined this afternoon by Leah Harris. Leah, you were in court. Now, from what I can understand, there were some very sensational developments regarding a person of interest and his specific whereabouts on the morning, the day that William disappeared, September 12, 2014. Tell us what happened.
1: So the evidence that was tendered today was mostly centred around Robert Donahue, who was the new person of interest named this week that we spoke about in the Last episode. So just to recap, Robert Donahue is a convicted sex offender who was living and working in the area at the time. It was revealed earlier this week in court that detectives investigating William's disappearance searched his white van uh, in August last year, looking for any evidence of the missing toddler. Um, and his former manager actually testified this week and told the court that he would often sleep in that van parked at the local Kendall swimming pool, or the Kendall Showgrounds, which is about one kilometer from William's foster grandmother's house where he disappeared. What's
0: important to mention here, Leah, is that Mr. Donahue had two jobs at the time that William disappeared. He was working at the service station near Kendall, near where, of course, William disappeared from his foster grandmother's house, and also working for a local telecommunications company.
1: So he was working as a contractor through a recruitment company and at the time they were installing the NBN, the National Broadband Network, in Tari, which is about 50 kilometres from Kendall. So a man by the name of Troy Brown took the stand first today and he spoke about his time working as a junior supervisor for the company that was helping to install the NBN and that his job was to allocate work to contractors. Now, Robert Donahue at the time of William's disappearance, was one of those contractors he was working off and on, helping to install that NBN. So Mr. Brown told the court that he didn't have a lot to do with Mr. Donoghue uh, and that he was only there for around two weeks. Um, and he can't recall if Mr. Donoghue was working on the date of September 12, 2014, when William went missing, but he himself, that's Mr. Brown, was working that day.
0: So, Leah, why was this information important that was tendered today?
1: So, Mr. Brown was then presented by the council assisting the coroner a timesheet for Robert Donahue for the work that he did with the recruitment company on the NBN for the week starting the 7th of September 2014, which included Friday, September 12, the day that William went missing. Mr. Brown's name is written on that timesheet along with a signature. He was asked if that name and signature was written by him and he told the court that it was not his signature or his handwriting.
0: So does that mean the whereabouts of Mr Donoghue is unclear on the day that William disappeared? He wasn't at work at the telecommunications company and he wasn't working at the service station.
1: So what we have heard in court is that they haven't been able to confirm whether or not he was working at the Caltech service station that day and based on what Mr Brown has said, he has raised questions as to whether his timesheets for that week for his other job were valid and whether or not they were actually signed off by the right person. He was presented with um, several documents during the hearing this week where his name and signature appeared on them um, but he told the court that that was not his name or signature. So that included a timesheet for the month before, um, a week in August, that also included his name and signature which he claimed was not written by him.
0: So why is Mr Brown so adamant that it's not his signature on the timesheet?
1: He spoke a lot about the style of handwriting and the signature and just being that he didn't recognise it. He spoke about the way that the R goes to the O in Troy, that it had a little loop around and he doesn't do the loops when he prints his name. He spoke about the way the T was written, that that's not the way he writes his T. But importantly as well, he spoke about the fact that he was a junior supervisor at the time and he told the court it was simply above his pay grade at the time to even be signing off on timesheets.
0: Did Mr Donahue take the stand today?
1: He did take the stand today. Uh, And he told the court that he has a cognitive impairment, um, asked them to speak up and also claimed that he was bashed in jail and that his memory isn't 100%. Obviously, as we mentioned in the previous episode, he has spent the past few years in jail for sexually assaulting two uh, young intellectually disabled men that he met through the SES. So they began questioning him about the search for William and his work for the SES being called in to help search for him. Uh, He spoke about searching that day until around midnight and how he had to work the next day. The court was then shown a taped police interview with him at the Wagga Wagga police station late last year. In it, he was wearing prison greens and he was being questioned by a detective by the name of Mark Dukes who was working for the William Tyrrell Strike Force. Here is some audio from that tape. For the purpose of this interview, can you please state your full name, please, and date of birth? Mr Donohoe, I'm going to ask you some questions in relation to the disappearance and suspected murder of William Tyrrell at Kendall on Friday, the 12th day of September 2014. Any answers you give will be recorded on this machine as the interview takes place. Do you understand that? You're not obliged to say or do anything unless you wish to do so, but whatever you say or do will be recorded. you understand that? So that silence that you're hearing there is Robert's refusal to answer any questions. Um, it was said in court today that that interview went on for quite a while, we didn't hear the whole thing, um, but that he did refuse to answer any of those questions, including simply confirming his name.
0: As we know, William disappeared almost five years ago now. This is the first time that we've heard about Robert Donahue as a person of interest.
1: It is interesting because I've covered this case from day one and it's the first that I have heard of him. Uh, And it's obviously the first time he's now spoken publicly today. Uh, But as we mentioned in the last episode, he was working at a Caltech service station in Lakewood at the time, which is about a 10-minute drive from Kendall. And his manager at the time, who uh, testified earlier this week, spoke about him being creepy and that local schoolgirls used to avoid coming into the service station when he was working because they too thought he was creepy. She also spoke about his bizarre behaviour, Uh, which included bringing a candle into the service station, which obviously isn't ideal for um, a place where there is petrol and gas. Uh, Also keeping live chickens in his white van, the same van that was searched at the time. Uh, And also that he brought a stamp in, a star stamp, and wanted to stamp kids' hands when they came in, uh, but he was told he was not allowed to do that.
0: And he's also a convicted sex offender.
1: He is. As I mentioned, he was convicted of um, sexually assaulting intellectually disabled men.
0: So was Mr Donoghue questioned extensively today?
1: He was not questioned extensively at all. Once the police tape that you've just heard was played in court, uh, the coroner actually then um, heard some legal argument um, and then dismissed him from being questioned any further, from giving any further testimony. The reason for that is covered by a court order, meaning that I cannot talk about it, unfortunately.
0: And there was also another very interesting development at the coronial inquest this afternoon on a Friday afternoon. Tell us what happened regarding Bill Spedding.
1: So Peter O'Brien, who is the lawyer for washing machine repairman Bill Spedding, we've spoken extensively about Spedding in previous episodes, he made an application to call some witnesses that haven't been named on the current witness list. He told the court he wanted to call seven police officers who worked on the William Tyrrell Strike Force, including former lead detective Gary Jubelin. He argued that all these officers had significant involvement in the case, um, particularly Jubelin at the highest level of the investigation. And he told the court that he hasn't been provided with statements from many of these officers, including Jubelin, who was obviously the former lead investigator. In his arguments that these officers should be called, he said, and this is a quote, for the community, for the family and for the loved ones of William Tyrrell, it is a vitality to know from those in charge of the investigation, the history of the investigation, the manner in which the investigation took the paths it took, why those paths were taken from start to now and possibly what further inquiries are yet to be had. He said they were also entitled to know the deficiencies and he told the court that he hasn't been able to pose the important question to these people as to why the forensic search that was conducted last year wasn't conducted earlier. As we
0: know, Leah, Mr Spedding is a person of interest in this ongoing investigation. Why would his lawyer call the former chief investigator to testify?
1: So there are several reasons for this, and he alluded to a lot of them in court. Um, He mentioned that he wanted to question these officers, particularly Mr Jubilin about why some persons of interest were identified publicly and some weren't. Obviously, his client was one of the ones who was identified publicly. He spoke about the detective's use of the media and mentioned that there was an apparent notification that Mr. Spedding was a pedophile, but pointed out, and rightly so, that Mr. Spedding has not been convicted of any child sex offences. He said that it had been frustrating and damaging for his client, Mr. Spedding, and that he and the rest of the community are entitled to know whether it could have been done better.
0: We know William's foster parents have been very adamant about their requests for the former Chief Inspector Gary Jubilant to be called to this coronial inquest, saying it was critical there was a transfer of that information and that he needed to be there to pass through that knowledge. Now we're seeing Mr Spedding also making a similar request. Did anyone else support that today at the coronial inquest?
1: So the lawyer for Legal Aid, who was there representing the birth father, then also stood up and supported this application, particularly to call former Chief Inspector Gary Jubelin, and she also suggested that the former retired detective Hans Rupp, who led this investigation right at the very beginning for several months, should also be called as well to give a what she called an overarching narrative of the investigation.
0: So there's a huge chorus of support For the former chief investigator, Gary Jubelin, to be called, what did the coroner say?
1: So the counsel assisting the coroner argued that the investigation isn't complete and the focus of the inquest needs to remain on gathering evidence that could help find out what happened to William, not scrutinising the investigation that has already been done. He said that it would be premature and would take away the focus from the important work of finding William. And the coroner actually agreed with him. She accepted that Mr. Spedding had suffered some consequences having been named as a person of interest in this case. And she said that there are times that a coronial inquest could examine the adequacy of the police investigation. However, she said that her focus has to remain on finding out what happened to William. She said, and this is a quote, if there is a need to examine the adequacy of the police investigation, it is not now and that it would cause the proceedings to lose focus at this point. So she said that she may consider this application again in the future when the time comes to scrutinise the police investigation, but for the time being she has refused that application and refused to allow Gary Jubelin to testify at this inquest.
0: So does that mean, is the coroner inferring, that she may call Mr Jubelin later?
1: She has left the door open to reassess the application to call him as a witness at a later date. So how was
0: that decision by the coroner received in court?
1: So the lawyer for Mr Spedding, Peter O'Brien, flagged immediately that he would be making this application again at a later date.
0: And the coronial inquest continues next week and moves to Taree, which is about 50 kilometres away from Kendall, where we know William disappeared almost five years ago now. Leah, you're heading to Taree. What can we expect next week?
1: So next week we're expected to hear from a number of locals who live in the area, including washing machine repairman Bill Spedding and neighbour Paul Savage.
0: This podcast is about giving William a voice. If you have any information that may help with the ongoing investigation, please email us at where'swilliam at network10.com.au.